0: For the longest time, I was completely unable to separate the idea of what used to be called walking pneumonia with the vision of Christopher Walken with a cough and fever. But as potent as that visual is, as I begin to practice, it was replaced by the legion of patients who suffer from what we have now termed, and I would venture to say more appropriately termed, community-acquired pneumonia. CAP checks all the key boxes for the emergency physician. It's common... Pneumonia is actually the third leading reason for hospital admission. It can be deadly, the leading cause of sepsis and death from infection, and we can do something about it. That combination of characteristics means we should be very, very interested in getting this one right. Which begs the question, do we get it right? Today we'll be figuring out how something seemingly so simple as pneumonia could be so troublesome to perfect. Are you on team overtreat or team underdiagnose? Who's ready for a good old-fashioned EM cases humbling? So the role of the emergency physician as always is really fivefold when it comes to CAP. 1, to stabilize sick patients, 2, to get the right diagnosis, rule in the right diagnosis but also rule out other life or limb threatening diagnoses. Number 3, to initiate the correct best treatment with the information at hand, number 4, to prognosticate and appropriately decide on disposition of patients. And number five, to be healthcare and antimicrobial stewards. So with these roles in mind, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce my colleague at North York General Hospital, a guy who definitely is in my top five best EM clinicians I've ever seen. His clinical acumen really is mind-blowing. His practical application of the literature is second to none, and he's probably the most efficient EM doc I've ever worked with the man you may have heard before on our ENT episodes, a frequent faculty of the EM Cases course, Dr. Lior Sommer. Welcome back to the show, Lior.
1: Thanks, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: All right, and another familiar voice from our episodes on soft tissue infections and UTI myths and misperceptions, our go-to ID guru, the head of antimicrobial stewardship at the University Health Network and Mount Sinai Hospitals, Professor Andrew Morris. Welcome, Andrew.
2: Great to be here again
0: couple of quick announcements before we get into our discussion on pneumonia. Registration for the February EM cases course featuring roundtable discussions with your favorite EM cases guest experts, followed by high fidelity simulation sessions, opens on October 1st at 10 a.m on the EM cases website. There's only 48 tickets available which usually sell out in a day or two, so act fast. And with the release of this podcast is the release of a brand new EM cases foam offering, ECG cases, making complexes simple a blog that combines the best of ECG interpretation nuggets with the latest in educational theory with Jesse McLaren, who will also be featured on the Quick Hits podcast. So let's jump into our first case. A 36-year-old healthy male comes in one cold Canadian winter eve with a four-day history of increasing cough with green sputum, shortness of breath on exertion, and severe fatigue. He's felt chills and night sweats and thinks he's had a fever for the last two days. He has no nasal congestion, minimal sore throat, and mild aches all over, including a mild headache. No chest pain except when he coughs violently, and his vitals are normal except for a temp of 38.5. So, we've all seen patients with pneumonia many times, and many of us probably feel pretty confident making the diagnosis, but it turns out that up to one-third of the time... Yes, you heard that right. One third of the time were wrong about the diagnosis. Now, this might be because of the silly four-hour rule in the States that came into play a few years ago, uh, which may have forced ED docs to make a diagnosis prematurely, or it could be because admitting physicians sometimes won't accept a patient unless they have a pretty definitive diagnosis. So we end up labeling the patient who we're not sure about with an pneumonia just to get them seen by the admitting physician. Um, you know This can be dangerous, especially if you're missing a PE or CHF or a lung cancer, common and deadly stuff that we might miss by prematurely labeling patients with pneumonia. Any which way, I think it's important to drill into the precise definition and diagnosis of pneumonia, which hopefully will help us get the diagnosis right more often. So Dr. Morris, what the heck is pneumonia?
2: I wish I knew. I think probably the simplest way to define pneumonia is infection of the lung parenchyma. And it could be from any cause. Most of the time we think it's bacterial or viral, but it's primarily a clinical diagnosis. We usually rely on other tests to help us make that diagnosis. But at the end of the day, what you described with the case just now is a perfect example of somebody who comes in with respiratory symptoms that include cough and sputum, often with shortness of breath along with that and accompanying fever. And if we're lucky, we're going to find a pulmonary infiltrate on imaging, and we'll probably have some other information that might reassure us but probably isn't necessary to indicate that there's some inflammation going along, whether that's an elevated white blood cell count or some adjunctive tests like a C-reactive
0: protein.
1: And the patients are going to present all over the map from one of your least sick patients that shift to maybe your sickest patient that week.
0: One of the other reasons we get the diagnosis wrong sometimes is because the symptoms and signs overlap with other common illnesses, right? So symptoms like myalgia, fatigue, belly pain, headache, they often accompany the classic symptoms of CAP, making it difficult to distinguish from a viral infection, particularly influenza, You know, just based on the history alone. So what are some of the key features on history and physical to help us rule in pneumonia? I mean, we talked a little bit about sort of the classic story, which is in our case. But what are some of the kind of key things that you look out for when you're thinking, hmm, I bet this is pneumonia rather than the flu or some other viral illness?
1: So, like a lot of things in emergency medicine, we we rely on some of the most simple features on history and physical to make the diagnosis. Uh, vital signs are still absolutely vital in making the diagnosis of pneumonia. So, things like a high temperature uh, an increased respite uh, and obviously signs of shock would make you think that this person has a more severe illness. But the truth is that making the clinical diagnosis alone is actually very difficult. Some of the physical exam features that we usually or classically have relied on to make the diagnosis of pneumonia, like ascultatory findings, are completely unreliable. The intra-observer reliability of those findings is abysmal. So we're probably not as good at making the diagnosis based on our physical exam findings as we think we are. And that's why most of the time... In fact, I'd say almost all the time, we rely on some other form of diagnosis, usually imaging.
2: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think another uh, important historical note is that it appears that pneumonia has changed. So in the days of William Osler, it was rather common to find that your classical uh, physical exam findings of bronchial breath sounds, egophony, whispered pectoriloquy, etc., But we don't seem to find that anymore, and the usual physical exam finding of community-acquired pneumonia in our day is a normal chest exam or merely crackles.
0: When I dug into the JAMA clinical examination series, does this patient have community-acquired pneumonia, and looked at the likelihood ratios, they were all pretty abysmal, actually. Um, you know, usually when I dig into that, you'll find something with a pretty good positive likelihood ratio or negative likelihood ratio that you think will help you. But in the case of pneumonia, unfortunately, the likelihood ratios aren't that great. So we are relying uh, a lot on our gestalt, a combination of some of those features, plus imaging, which we'll get to in a minute.
1: Yeah, this is really one of those diagnoses, like many things that we do in emergency medicine, where it's not one piece of information that's going to clinch the diagnosis. It's going to be all those little features like the findings on a uh, physical exam, the imaging, and the vital signs that are going to help you make the diagnosis.
0: Mm-hmm. And related to this, you know, we often find at the bottom of the chart the diagnosis of bronchitis, and that's one of the more common misdiagnoses of pneumonia going both ways. Some people are diagnosed with pneumonia when they really have bronchitis and leading to overtreatment. Do you have any sort of magical clinical features that can help you distinguish bronchitis from pneumonia?
1: Bronchitis is a pet peeve of mine. The diagnosis itself, acute bronchitis, I find it mostly sets patients' expectations that they're going to receive antibiotics on that visit. Uh, And I find there's very little uh, that helps me delineate what acute bronchitis versus a simple viral upper respiratory illness, and maybe they're the same thing as far as I'm concerned. So I try to not use that diagnosis at all in the emergency department. You can have pneumonia, and you can have an upper respiratory illness that's most likely viral. I don't find bronchitis a useful term.
0: Hmm, That's a good point. I mean, just by using the term bronchitis may be actually contributing to the trend of overuse of antibiotics. (music) let's say this guy gets some blood work done. You could argue that blood work really isn't warranted, but let's leave that aside for now. It seems to me that there are two camps when it comes to white blood cell count. Dr. Morris, you had mentioned that white blood cell count or CRP might help contribute to your diagnosis of pneumonia. Um, But, you know, the one camp usually says, they're kind of like the naysayers. They say that white blood cell count is pretty useless in shifting probability of bacterial disease. The other camps say that while white blood cell count is often non-contributory, extremes of white blood cell count might be useful. Like if the white blood cell count is 2, for example, you should be worried. And if it's 27, you should be worried. Dr. Morris, what's your take on the utility of the white blood cell count in working up the patient for community-acquired pneumonia in the ED? I mean, we order tons and tons and tons of CBCs, which are probably not warranted. With white blood cell count in particular, how useful or not useful is it, do you think?
2: To truly make a diagnosis of community acquired pneumonia, you want to believe that there's some kind of systemic inflammation that's going on, even though it's a disease that's primarily localized to the lungs. The lungs are a big enough and important enough organ that pretty well always patients have a systemic inflammatory response. And that inflammatory response can be manifested in many ways, The most common way are the constitutional symptoms of fever, chills, and night sweats. But along that continuum includes elevated white blood cell count, C-reactive protein, procalcitonin, and a whole bunch of other markers. They may help people where there's areas of uncertainty. So if you're really uncertain about a diagnosis and you're thinking about maybe sending a patient home not on antibiotics, then maybe an abnormal White blood cell count or other inflammatory marker might help you shift your diagnosis a bit towards pneumonia and suggest to you to prescribe antibiotics when you might otherwise not. But I would say for in most situations, it's not very helpful.
1: I think uh, it was uh, the previous chair of ASAP, Greg Henry, who said that the white blood cell count was the last bastion of the morally destitute and intellectually corrupt White blood cell count has very limited util- utility in diagnosis. You can have a high white blood cell count with no bacterial infection. You can, uh, we know that a quarter of pneumonia patients who are admitted to hospital will have a normal white blood cell count. So in terms of its diagnostic utility and clinching the diagnosis, it's fairly useless. Now, maybe it's got a role in prognostication. So those patients who have very low white blood cell counts, less than five, or very high white blood cell counts, like less more than 25, sometimes that'll identify a patient who's sicker. But interestingly enough, it wasn't a good enough marker to be included in any of the prognostic tools that we use for, some, for pneumonia severity.
0: Yeah, good point. Um, and Dr. Morris, you had mentioned CRP. Can you say the same thing for CRP or do you find CRP actually a useful marker? Is it something that you think we should be ordering in the emergency department or more is it for admitted patients to to uh, monitor how well they're doing?
2: I never use it, period.
0: Wow. All right. <laughs> <laughs> can we drop the Well, that the was mic? a simple answer. <laughs> okay, you never use CRP, period. Um, and As I it can... relates to pneumonia. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right. And uh, Dr. Summer, the the utility of a CRP,
1: I agree in pneumonia, I don't find it very useful. Unfortunately, it can be high in the setting of a viral infection and uh, you know, maybe a low CRP is slightly reassuring.
0: All right. And then the last one would be procalcitonin. I know there's been a lot of recent literature on procalcitonin. Dr. Morris, any value either in the emergency department or for prognostication? I understand that there's some studies that show uh, that it might be useful in determining the duration of therapy once they're admitted. Procalcitonin, yay or nay?
2: Yeah, I think it's a glass half full, half empty uh, situation with procalcitonin. It seems to me, based on the literature that we have, that it's a useful marker in theory, but... As with so many other studies with procalcitonin, the ones in community-acquired pneumonia suggest that even though it's probably of value, clinicians don't seem to trust it enough to make decisions. The most recent of studies, which was done in uh, multiple sites in the US, published just a couple of years ago, suggested that even though it was helpful, it really didn't make a difference in terms of antibiotic exposure nor length of stay or mortality. But that's on the background of earlier studies that suggested that it is beneficial. We know that patients who have a low procalcitonin after five days, you can probably comfortably stop antibiotics. But the problem is, for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to translate to behavior change, at least in high-performing hospitals.
0: I imagine from what you're saying that there's really no role for procalcitonin in the emergency department.
1: From what I gather, most of the research that's been done has been mostly about cessation of antibiotics downstream. I know that there's some literature in the pediatric field, uh, for example, a step-by-step tool that's been used for pediatric sepsis that uses procalcitonin as one marker uh, for diagnosis. I haven't seen anything supporting the use of procalcitonin for diagnosis of acute infection in adults in the ED.
0: that's a little bit about blood tests. White blood cell count, not very helpful. CRP, not very helpful. Procalcitonin, not very helpful. So that leads us into what might be helpful, which is imaging. So let's talk about chest x-ray. It seems that almost every adult with a cough in the ED will get a chest x-ray, but many of them probably don't really need an x-ray. So Dr. Summer, which patients with a cough do not need an x-ray?
1: Like we were saying earlier, it's very difficult to make the diagnosis of pneumonia based on history and physical alone. So our threshold for ordering chest x-rays tends to be fairly low in the emergency department. That being said, in non-elderly patients with normal vital signs and no physical exam findings of pneumonia, your pre-test probability of having an abnormal chest x-ray or having the final diagnosis of pneumonia is less than 1%. So if you order a chest X-ray on that patient, uh, the likelihood of you having a true positive in the setting of a low incidence is going to be low, and you're much more likely to misdiagnose that patient. Even just the combination of heart rate, rest rate, and temperature, if those are normal, your negative likelihood ratio is about 0.18, according to the literature. So that's going to be a very unlikely diagnosis of pneumonia. You still have to consider some other diagnoses: asthma, COPD, heart failure, other things that a chest X-ray may or may not help you make, uh, but patients who are non-elderly, under the age of 65, with normal vital signs and no physical exam findings, probably don't need an X-ray.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know every now and then you'll order a chest X-ray for someone who doesn't have pneumonia clinically, and you'll see maybe a little bit of atelectasis there, and you might say, oh, it looks like there might be a little something there, and then treat it as pneumonia, and of course, they don't have pneumonia. So, you know, there's all those false positives that you might get with a chest x-ray as well. Yeah,
2: I would support that. And I think one of the things I've learned over the years with pneumonia is that you need to start developing some comfort with uncertainty. And there may be times where you really don't know and either the patient needs to be reevaluated, or even just a follow-up phone call the next day, see how they're doing, and that may shift your decisions on management.
0: One of the luxuries we don't have in the emergency department generally is to see people over time, but we should probably do it more often is, you know, rather than ordering a million tests and giving them some, you know, heavy-duty antibiotics, tell them, hey, why don't you just come on back in two days and get reassessed?
1: I've never regretted calling a patient at home a day or two later. That's always been a positive thing to do.
0: We know that no test is perfect and no radiologist is perfect in reading the imperfect test. And of course, chest x-ray is no exception. Dr. Morris, what is the accuracy of chest x-ray for pneumonia? I mean, which patients with a normal chest x-ray would you consider treating for pneumonia? Because we know that we do get a certain small percentage of patients who actually have pneumonia you know, diagnosed over time who will initially have a normal chest X-ray?
2: It's really a tough question to answer. There are some studies that have looked at the sensitivity and specificity of radiography. Usually those are based on more advanced techniques like CT scanning. The problem is in almost all the literature, abnormal radiography is essential to the diagnosis of pneumonia. So you actually can't be included in a study unless you have abnormal imaging. So, and if you go back even to most of the various national clinical guidelines on community acquired pneumonia, they mandate that a patient has abnormal radiography. So if you go by that definition, despite what Lior and I have been already saying today, you really can't have pneumonia, at least for literature purposes, for publication purposes, unless there's radiographic imaging. That being said, I think we all recognize that at least the plain radiograph has uh, upwards of 10% insensitivity, and so uh, that means that if you do something like a CT scan, you'll find abnormalities that you didn't initially see on your chest X-ray.
0: All right, and is it true that the severely dehydrated patient, for example, might be more likely to have a normal chest X-ray when they in fact have pneumonia?
2: Absolutely. There are three general situations where I tell uh, colleagues, including residents, that the x-ray may be normal when, in fact, there's pulmonary infection. Uh, One of those is dehydration. Another one is when patients have underlying neutropenia, so they, they aren't able to produce an inflammatory infiltrate. And then the third situation is just the very black lungs, so the patients with severe emphysema, for example. And in those situations, you often don't see an infiltrate, even though they may have pneumonia.
0: So when we're looking at these chest X-rays, there's a normal chest X-ray, and then there's a chest X-ray with subtle findings for pneumonia. What are some of the more subtle findings on chest X-ray that we should look for in particular when we suspect pneumonia? You know, sometimes you look at the chest x-ray, it's obvious there's like a big infiltrate there. But do you have any tips and tricks about just looking at chest x-rays
1: to kind of search for the, quote, hidden pneumonia? So you're right. The, the obvious ones are going to be obvious. Uh, there are a few more subtle findings that sometimes will help you clinch the diagnosis. Silhouetting of a heart border of the diaphragm, those can sometimes be subtle. Uh, you can sometimes have a very small pleural effusion that'll just show up as a blunting of your costophrenic angle. I think something that people often uh, do miss or don't actually look at very closely is the lateral chest X-ray. It's a forgotten view in many cases. And it can you can see sometimes infiltrates that you won't see on a PA or an AP view, but also just identifying the normal structures on a lateral, uh, the trachea, the, the left mainstem bronchus, the right pulmonary artery. When you can't see those things clearly, you should suspect that at least the patient has some adenopathy that's obscuring them, and that should raise your clinical suspicion a little bit.
0: Yeah. And especially those those retrocardiac infiltrates, those ones are, are sometimes, those sometimes are impossible to see on the AP and will only show up on the lateral. Yeah.
2: I usually tell people, look on the lateral x-ray and it should get blacker as you go down. If it's getting whiter as you go down, there's probably something there.
0: Good general rule. Let's talk about chest X-ray patterns. You know, I remember way back in medical school being taught that there are certain chest X-ray patterns which can predict the causative bacteria to help guide antibiotic choices. Dr. Morris, is that true anymore? Can the etiology of pneumonia be predicted from the chest X-ray pattern?
2: No, I think that has been largely dispelled. And I think usual bacterial pathogens like uh, Streptococcus pneumoniae or Haemophilus influenza can produce rather atypical pictures. And similarly, the more atypical bacteria, such as mycoplasma or Legionella, can produce rather typical low bar pictures as well.
1: So so you're telling me all that pimping at morning report was completely useless for my education?
0: Total waste of time. (laughs) All right. Let's say that we do see an infiltrate on a chest x ray I think it's important just to go through the differential diagnosis because so often you know you have someone who might have a cough, uh, they don't have an obvious pneumonia clinically. Uh, you see something that looks like an infiltrate on the chest x ray you call it pneumonia and you move the patient on and that's actually when the misdiagnosis rate is quite high, and it's actually when it might be arguably the most dangerous because we can miss some serious things so Dr. Morris, what are the other diagnoses we should consider before reflexively calling it a pneumonia if we see some schmutz on the x-ray?
2: I've got a few thoughts on this. One of them in particular is that most physicians make the diagnosis relatively quickly when they walk into the room and so aren't too interested in reflecting on other possibilities. So I I think it's a really important practice to be rather reflective and determined in considering your differential diagnoses. because we know that as physicians, we just don't do that enough, especially in people who come in with uh, shortness of breath and fever. To me, the one that hits home the most because it was a diagnosis that I missed years ago and resulted in uh, a patient dying was pulmonary embolism. And pulmonary embolism can look very much like pneumonia, fever, shortness of breath, sometimes some chest pain, elevated white blood cell count, as we sort of alluded to before. And that's the one where the findings can be so subtle and yet can be uh, really quite profound. And certainly the outcome can be profound. The other thing that comes to mind often for me when I see patients, and it's more often older patients, to be honest, is the patient who comes in with fever and tachypnea. And clinicians often interpret tachypnea as shortness of breath, but it's not. And patients with tachypnea, especially in the absence of substantial hypoxia, usually have some other cause for their tachypnea. And it just means that they're systemically unwell. So things like pyelonephritis, as an example, appendicitis or other intraabdominal infection can absolutely mimic immune-acquired pneumonia. The usual other broad differential is all there, heart failure, COPD exacerbations, etc. But those two si- uh, syndromes or situations in particular are the ones that I'm going to highlight as as pearls here.
1: I can't emphasize uh, what, uh, what Andrew said enough about the anchoring bias that we have when we walk into the patient's room. Spot diagnosis kills. Uh, we're so good at it. We're so fast at it. But anchoring on a diagnosis because the patient has a fever and some respiratory findings is going to make you drive you to make mistakes. I had a patient just this weekend who rolled into our resuscitation area with a temperature of 38.8, a cough, and tachypnea. Everything in my brain was saying this patient had pneumonia. He ended up having uh, an infarct with pulmonary edema. So just be reflective, like Dr. Morris was saying.
0: Before we leave chest x-ray and go on to CT, the other thing is you see an infiltrate on chest x-ray and one of the myths out there that I've seen is if you see an apical infiltrate, then you really need to think about TB because it's almost always TB. And conversely, that if it's not an apical infiltrate, then it's not TB. Um, And TB is one of those things that's very difficult for us to pick up in the emergency department. Dr. Morris, can you just Give us a few pearls in terms of what should tweak us to think maybe this could be TB, which of course is a totally different management than your usual community-acquired pneumonia, and whether there's anything on the chest X-ray that can help us in that respect.
2: I'm not sure I can give you pearls, but I'll give you oysters at least. The consideration of tuberculosis is primarily a clinical one based on history, at least in Canada where we are. We see tuberculosis in uh, people who come from endemic regions uh, with tuberculosis or in our uh, indigenous population. And it's really uncommon to see it in uh, people other than from those main two demographics. Uh, We do also see it in, I guess, other marginalized populations as well. Altogether, that's still a relatively small number of patients in Canada but it's a really important population because of the various implications both to the patient and from a public health perspective but that diagnosis is primarily a clinical one and then it's secondarily a radiographic one one of the most important aspects of on history of tuberculosis is the duration of symptoms it's pretty uncommon for patients to come in with a very acute history of reactivation tuberculosis now, 5 to 10% of tuberculosis is primary, so it does present like a community acquired pneumonia, but you're talking 5 to 10% in a relatively uncommon disease. So the really important historical aspect here is what's the patient's demography and how acute is the syndrome?
0: Great, I love that. That's simple. So populations that come from TB endemic areas and then the duration of the illness, if it's protracted, then you really need to start thinking about TB. And then what about the chest x-ray. So, you know, we were all taught that, you know, an apical infiltrate is TB until proven otherwise. But I've also seen uh, patients who end up being diagnosed with TB who have an infiltrate, you know, in the left lower lobe that looks like a regular community-acquired pneumonia.
2: I think Lior alluded to this earlier that it's all related to your relative likelihood. And certainly in somebody with an apical infiltrate, you're certainly thinking more TB than something else. But an apical infiltrate doesn't tell you that it's tuberculosis, and certainly the absence of an apical infiltrate uh, or, for example, an infiltrate elsewhere doesn't rule out tuberculosis.
1: But I would say a patient who does present with a primary community-acquired pneumonia with an apical infiltrate, I might be more inclined to have their sputum at least tested.
0: So knowing that chest x-ray is nowhere near perfect for pneumonia... When is a CT scan indicated for a suspected pneumonia in general? So let's just talk about Dr. Morris say when a patient's admitted for pneumonia, when would you consider getting a CT? And then we'll talk about maybe Dr. Summer could comment on when a CT would be recommended in the emergency department.
2: In my mind it's uh, the patient who in some ways misbehaving. So the patient who doesn't follow the typical story of a commune-acquired pneumonia, the patient who has a really atypical chest X-ray for commune-acquired pneumonia, certainly somebody who's had recurrent episodes of commune-acquired pneumonia, or somebody whose history really doesn't suggest that it's commune-acquired pneumonia, either because of its duration or perhaps associated symptomatology, for any of those reasons, I might consider uh, getting a CT scan have to admit on occasion, sometimes it's as simple as the uh, radiologist saying uh, would suggest a CT scan because of the findings. And that may be a reason for me to do that as well. But it's rather unusual for me to get a CT scan for most patients.
0: Sure. What, what about in the immunocompromised patient? You know, some people argue that most of them should be getting a CT scan regardless of what you see on the chest X-ray. Is there any validity to that?
2: So I have difficulty with the term immunocompromised because it is such a catch-all. I think for the neutropenic patient, it's uncertain whether or not uh, patients who don't have respiratory symptoms should get a CT scan. Uh, we know that chest X-rays are relatively poor in identifying uh, pneumonia in patients who are neutropenic. The problem is that, for example, the leukemic patient, just at baseline, 50% of those patients have abnormal CT scans. And so uh, you don't really know what you're getting when you order that CT scan. That being said, if you've got a reasonably high suspicion and the patient is neutropenic or has other profound immunocompromised such as recent solid organ transplantation, then I think it would be reasonable to just go straight to a CT scan. And that's pretty well the practice in in most tertiary centers.
0: And Dr. Sommer, in terms of uh ordering a CT scan in the emergency department. Do you think there's much role for that? Are there any sort of particular patient populations where you'd consider getting a CT scan? Or maybe just if you're really unsure of the diagnosis, you might get a CT scan?
1: So so I think the patients that Andrew was describing are uh, rare in most community hospitals. Ordering a CT scan to, to make the diagnosis of pneumonia similarly should be rare, We are really great at ordering CT scans. We order a lot of CT scans. This shouldn't be one of the main reasons you're ordering a CT scan in the emergency department, because every CT scan you order has implications otherwise. It has implications for the patient. There's a lot of radiation. Uh, You're maybe making diagnoses that you wouldn't make otherwise based on imaging and not based on the story. But there are also system-wide issues that will occur when you order a CT scan. You order a CT scan in the afternoon, that is going to delay somebody else's diagnosis. That will also maybe bump someone off a CT scan list for that day. You're going to have impact on patient flow in your emergency department. So every CT scan that you order should be taken uh, heavily. That's a, that's a big decision. For most patients who you're going to make the diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, a CT scan is absolutely unnecessary.
2: If I could just add to that, I, th- I think what we were talking about earlier about uncertainty, diagnostic uncertainty, I think people often reach for the CT scan because they have a bit of uncertainty and they're hoping to reduce that uncertainty. But I think if you're comfortable with that uh, uncertainty or if you're willing to follow up then you don't need to get that CT scan, and with, with all the implications that Lior alluded to.
1: And, and diagnostic uncertainty is a fundamental aspect of emergency medicine. We will never have all the information. And what
0: about POCUS, point of care ultrasound? So, Dr. Summer, assuming that you have decent POCUS skills, do you think there's much of a role for POCUS in the ED diagnosis of pneumonia?
1: If you are particularly skilled in POCUS, there's good evidence to suggest that you are as sensitive or even more sensitive than a chest x-ray. Again, that needs uh, skill of the operator. It also needs something that I find I don't have that much in the emergency department, which is time. It's far easier for me in terms of time management to have the patient go for a chest x-ray and then me reassess them rather than getting the ultrasound machine, doing a POCUS exam, and then still maybe having some diagnostic uncertainty.
0: Yeah. I mean, especially if, you know, you divide your chest into 16 quadrants or 32 quadrants or however you want to do it, you know, to cover those areas carefully. It, I agree. It does It does take some time. I'm sure there'll be some uh, pocus keeners out there who might disagree with us and we welcome your emails.
2: I don't do pocus. Can't you just ask the patient which lobe the pneumonia is in?
0: I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get back to our case. So our 36-year-old otherwise healthy male comes back two days later, quite a bit sicker after being put on azithromycin. His vitals now show a temperature of 39. His heart rate's 115. Blood pressure is 110 on 60. And he's satting 90% on room air. First question, Dr. Morris, what would you do with his antibiotics? So he's uh, he's been on azithromycin for, let's say, two, three days.
2: You know you're killing me by giving me this scenario and sending the patient with azithromycin in the first place. It's a really... Tough question to answer in some to some degree because if this is a bacterial infection, it's most likely streptococcus pneumoniae, strep pneumo, and about a third of strep pneumos are resistant to macrolides like azithromycin. So we end up starting to play odds here, right? And whether or not this is failed antimicrobial therapy or this is just the normal course of uh, community-acquired pneumonia under treatment, or this is not a bacterial infection, any of those are reasonably possible here.
0: Great. Yeah, I think it's just important to think about those three possibilities. Dr. Summer, what's your take? So comes back two days later, a little bit sicker, not in septic shock, was on azithromycin, satting 90%. Uh, what would your move be at this
1: point? This patient can't go home. Uh, he needs an escalation of treatment He's clearly very sick. Even with just the limited amount of information that we have, his news score, if you're just going to see how sick he was, is seven. That puts him in the red zone. He's a sick patient. He's satting 90% on room air in otherwise healthy lungs. This patient's coming in. He's going to most likely have broadening of his antibiotic coverage.
0: All right. Yeah. I mean, his shock index is over one. News score is high. You know, while he's not overtly in septic shock, he might be heading that way based on that score.
2: If I can just add, you know, uh, Tom Mary did a study a few years ago looking at patients who come in with community-acquired pneumonia, and if you had no two set under 92%, it suggested that it portends at least a worse than normal outcome and suggests you should probably keep the patient for a minimum of 24 hours just to observe them.
0: Yeah, we're going to get to all the decision tools that incorporate the oxygen saturation. Actually, some of them incorporate the oxygen saturation and some of them don't. So we'll we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. I want to talk a little bit about, about this return patient in terms of how do you really define treatment failure? Because I, I, on purpose, made the patient kind of, you know, it's it's two days that he's been on antibiotics. He's not really on a very good antibiotic, and it's kind of borderline in that respect. But how do you actually define treatment failure? I know that's not an easy question. Dr. Morris?
2: So in the literature, there are some scores that have been used, uh, you know, in a few of the randomized control trials that have alluded to clinical stability which includes things like defervescence, And you can see that in those studies, takes a couple of days at least for patients to stabilize. And usually it's more than a couple of days, up to four to five days. In my mind, the most important thing to do is to ask the patient, do you feel better? And to me, that's often more reliable than almost any of the other markers that we use. Certainly oxygen saturation is helpful, especially when coupled with respiratory rate but it's amazing how much there's a disconnect with even that and how patients feel. So I rely most on just asking the patient, do you feel better or not? When they start to feel better, varies quite substantially. And some patients will feel better quite early on. Within 24 hours of being started on antibiotics, they may feel better. For other patients, it may take several days. And To this day, I'm not really good at predicting who's going to start to feel better and who won't.
0: Case number two. An 87-year-old female nursing home patient comes in at the same time as your young guy over the winter holidays. She has a history of ischemic stroke, moderate dementia, and diabetes. She looks pretty sick. She's also had four days of cough, but nonproductive. She had one measured temp over 38 at the nursing home, but is otherwise afebrile. She was sent in by the nursing home doc because she normally could get up out of bed and walk around with her walker pretty independently, but now she was so weak that she couldn't even get out of bed, and they measured an O2 sat of 89%. You can't get much of a history from the patient because of the dementia, and the vitals are pretty much within normal limits, but the O2 sat is wavering between 90 and 92% on room air. And like almost every adult patient who gets triage in an emergency department, her respiratory rate is documented as 20. So the next question is a controversial one, and Dr. Morris, being an ID specialist, may have some bias for this one, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Which patients need testing to identify the causative organism in the ED? So which patients need blood cultures, sputum cultures? Because if we order blood cultures on everyone suspected of pneumonia, we'll probably bankrupt the system and the vast majority of the blood cultures will not change management. On the other hand, I'm quite sure Dr. Morris is often faced with the clinical conundrum of the patient who isn't getting better in hospital from pneumonia and no blood cultures were drawn. Or if he wants to narrow the spectrum during hospitalization to avoid drug resistance with broad-spectrum antibiotics, he's going to want the blood culture results. So what are the indications for ED blood and sputum cultures?
2: So for blood cultures, I think what I tell people at least is that you want blood cultures when you suspect that the patient may be back to remic. So when when do you suspect somebody with pneumonia might be back to remic? usually they have some evidence of sepsis. So in a patient who's otherwise hemodynamically stable, looks reasonably well, and you're even considering sending home or anticipating a very short stay, the likelihood of blood cultures helping you is very small and there's probably no value in ordering blood cultures in those patients. have to admit, that being said, by the time I see them, the blood culture has already been sent off and almost everyone who gets admitted under me for commune-acquired pneumonia has already had two sets of blood cultures sent. But it is a minority of those patients who have positive blood cultures, unless there's some other demographic that would suggest that they might have bacteremia, possibly from another source. For example, uh, people who inject drugs who may have, whether it's a commune-acquired pneumonia or a right-sided endocarditis with septic pulmonary emboli, they might have uh, positive blood cultures. The question of sputum cultures, I think, is much more controversial. And I have to admit, in my mind, I'm still not certain what the right answer is. You alluded to the public health imperative, and I think that's a real one. Understanding the epidemiology of pathogens and resistance rates for pneumonia is really important. And sputum is our best look at the lungs that's reasonably accessible. So from that perspective, it's helpful to have sputum cultures to give us that kind of information and understand the epidemiology. Unfortunately, as in this patient that you're presenting, patients don't often have sputum that they can produce, or if they do produce sputum, the quality of it is so poor that we're not able to make a microbiologic diagnosis. So for both of those reasons, I think the utility from a bedside clinical perspective is relatively limited. Probably the most important test, which you haven't mentioned, is the nasopharyngeal swab. And I think the nasopharyngeal swab for viral pathogens is very important, both from a public health perspective and also from a stewardship perspective, because you can largely rule out a significant bacterial pneumonia for most patients. And whether or not you just get testing for influenza, whether it is for All of the common respiratory viruses will vary from center to center and that will really determine what your access is. But certainly NP swabs are helpful in this scenario that you presented. Uh,
0: The other thing that sometimes comes up is whether we should be testing the urine for Legionella uh, and for that matter for pneumococcal antigen. In the emergency department, any role for testing for Legionella or pneumococcal antigen in the urine? Nope. Agreed. All right, that's simple enough. All right, I want to move on to risk stratification. There's been several decision tools to help us risk stratify patients with CAP. The popular ones are CURB-65 and the Pneumonia Severity Index. Should we be using these tools in the emergency department to help us risk stratify these patients? Dr. Summer?
1: I think with, as with all diagnostic aids, these are aids. They aid your clinical judgment outside of all the other peripheral testing that we do. There is some utility to them, but your clinical judgment trumps them all. Uh, that being said, my preference is this, the pneumonia severity index, the PSI, even though it's a little bit more cumbersome. It's got more variables. I find that the information I generate from that is more useful in terms of prognostication and in terms of disposition. CURB-65 has the advantage of being relatively simple, but I think given the availability of smartphones and computer order entry, we are always at a device where we can simply plug in the information and get a number out that will help us guide management. Uh, So personally, my preference is I'll use the PSI if I'm finding it difficult to make a decision on that patient.
0: Yeah, sometimes uh, you plug in the numbers and and you're surprised and it really does uh, change your management. Just some of the things about CURB-65, we were talking about oxygen saturation before and how important that is to determine the severity of pneumonia that someone has. And the CURB-65 actually does not have oxygen saturation in it which some people criticize the rule for. All right, so Dr. Summer,
1: you think if we're going to use anything, PSI is probably better. And don't forget that to apply any of these rules, whether it's the CURB-65, the PSI, or SmartCOP, the patients actually have to have blood work drawn because they rely on blood work for several of the variables, venous blood gases, albumin, electrolytes. So in those patients where you weren't going to do blood work because your presupposition was that they're going to be low risk and most likely discharge, these don't really have a role.
0: All right, so that's a little bit about the decision aids or decision tools in terms of risk stratification. Anything else that helps you risk stratify your patient besides your gestalt?
1: a serum lactate has been shown in observational uh, data to be a better predictor uh, than the curb 65 rule for 28-day mortality, ICU admission and hospitalization. Uh, however, that hasn't been validated.
0: All right, we had mentioned the old 4-hour to antibiotic rule at the top of the podcast which I believe because of backlash from emergency physicians was actually extended to 6 hours in the states. Um, in Canada, we don't generally have those sort of rules. Dr. Summer, is there any validity as a quality measure for this four or six hour rule?
1: No, I'm a firm believer in emergency efficiency. And I think that source control in infected patients is critically important to their care. But I've not seen any data to suggest that a four or six hour rule will actually be beneficial to a patient uh, in the end. Uh, In fact, I've seen some data that is exactly the opposite because it leads to shotgun medicine where you have widespread broad coverage antibiotic use in the emergency department that can have some downstream implications as well.
0: I think we can anticipate what Dr. Morris as the uh, head of antimicrobial stewardship will say about the four and six hour rule. But Dr. Morris, we'll, we'll give you a time on the mic for this one. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, it's funny. Actually, I, w- I haven't really thought so much of it from a stewardship perspective as just an overall quality perspective. And I agree with uh, Lior entirely. You know, if you look at the literature, and in fact, I've even quoted or misquoted, depending on how you want to interpret it, but Emerge Physician Acumen on patients with commune-acquired pneumonia, a lot of it came from some studies- in this era, or at least in the era of the four-hour rule. And because the diagnosis was so often wrong, we came to this assumption and it was widely profligated that it was because eMERGE docs just either they weren't good at the job or it's just such a difficult diagnosis. But personally, I believe the real problem is that we were just pushing eMERGE docs too much to make that diagnosis too soon and saying that it was a quality indicator. And so anyone who came in with anything that even had a whiff of community acquired pneumonia was slapped on some antibiotics and given a label of community acquired pneumonia. I don't think it's good medicine. It was a disastrous decision based on two large administrative data sets that looked at mortality and overall patient outcomes related to time to antibiotics. And almost certainly there were so many biases in those data sets, both insurance and uh, other HMO data sets, that it was not helpful whatsoever.
0: We're going to move on to the huge topic of antibiotics, and I just want to preempt it by saying that this is going to totally depend on where you practice, and you're always going to need to you're always going to need to consult your local antibiograms. Um, but I think it's worth talking about antibiotics in in general terms, and we might even get into some specifics of what's done in Ontario just to give you a sense of how antibiotics should be prescribed community acquired pneumonia. And to start it off, I want to talk about oral versus IV antibiotics. Now, I know that there's at least nine big RCTs that show that oral antibiotics are as effective as IV antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia. Dr. Morris, which patients do you recommend receive IV antibiotics in the emergency department for community-acquired pneumonia?
2: I think the patients who are unstable, the ones who are heading to the ICU, the patients who are hemodynamically unstable, the patients who... Uh, You can't be certain whether or not they can take oral antibiotics nor absorb oral antibiotics. All those patients need intravenous antibiotics. Everyone else, they could probably get oral. There's really nothing magical about intravenous antibiotics as long as you can get appreciable levels in the blood through the enteral route. And for most patients, you can do that with most antibiotics that you're going to use for
0: community-acquired pneumonia. So, for example, giving someone oral clavulin is probably as good as giving, say, ceftriaxone. When someone comes in with community-acquired pneumonia, we don't have any blood cultures or any; we haven't identified any organism yet.
1: There may actually be an advantage to that in many scenarios. One, the time to add antibiotic administration in oral antibiotics tends to be far faster than IV antibiotics. Two, uh, that is going to be the subsequent disposition plan for almost all patients, will be oral antibiotics. And three, there are less adverse events associated with uh, oral antibiotic use and IV antibiotics.
0: And my understanding was actually there's two recent studies in the New England Journal of Medicine that was showing that even for osteomyelitis, Oral antibiotics are as good as IV antibiotics. And then there was a second one that showed that they randomized after, I think, a week of IV antibiotics for patients with endocarditis, even. They randomized to oral versus IV antibiotics, and the oral antibiotics were just as good. You know, this is a topic that I, I've been lecturing about recently, uh, and I think it's something that can really change, especially in an era where we have limited resources. I don't know the exact cost, but I imagine that IV antibiotics are way more expensive than oral antibiotics. In terms of efficiency in the emergency department, we can get patients oral antibiotics a lot faster than IV antibiotics. You know, It takes up nursing time. Uh, there's a whole long list of reasons why we should be using oral antibiotics in the vast majority of cases for almost any infectious disease that we see in the emergency department.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. I think... Uh... How we think about oral antibiotics uh, today differs substantially to how we thought about them 10, 15 years ago. And you know, you were alluding to the OVIVA and POET studies um, that were really fantastic randomized controlled trials. I don't think we've heard the end of the story. I think we're going to continue to hear a lot more uh, with uh, more trials pushing the envelope on oral antibiotics. There's always the caveat, and the caveat is that not all oral antibiotics can be tolerated at sufficient doses to get you sufficient levels where you need to get them for certain infections. But for the majority of situations where uh, I think many of your listeners probably reach for intravenous antibiotics initially, you could probably get away with oral antibiotics and, as Leor suggested, it would help your patients.
0: All right. And of course, there's the patients that you know have protracted vomiting. There's the patients who are very high aspiration risk that with short gut syndrome. So there are exceptions. But when you're trying to debate between which one, and there's no good reason to give the IV, then go for PO. Um, I want to talk about specific antibiotics now. I want to talk about amoxicillin clavulanic acid monotherapy. For a while there, it seemed to be what we were using quite often. Is it still appropriate first-line therapy for outpatient community-acquired pneumonia, Uh, what are your best options for sort of -of run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia in an otherwise healthy patient?
2: Penicillin or amoxicillin. That's what I would suggest. Um, I don't think we're totally there yet in terms of uh, prescriber comfort with that. What I mentioned earlier about the epidemiology of pneumonia, so... We know that for patients who get admitted to hospital, it's probably around 15%, 20% where we identify a bacterial pathogen. It's probably lower than that for the patients who are either seen in primary care outside the emergency department or are seen in the emergency department with a plan to discharge them straight home rather than admission. And the majority of those cases are going to be either streptococcus pneumoniae or haemophilus influenza. Every... Isolate of strep pneumo that comes in with pneumonia uh, these days is essentially susceptible to penicillins, whether it's penicillin or amoxicillin. There's no added benefit from the clavulanic acid because the clavulanic acid is for beta lactamase production. So you'd use that if you were wondering about MRSA, but we're not even talking about Staph aureus here. We're just talking about strep pneumo and Haemophilus hemophil- influenza. And somewhere between three quarters and 90% of H flu, uh, at least in Ontario, is susceptible to plain old amoxicillin as well. So because of those pieces of data, the majority of cases are viral. When they're bacterial, it's either going to be strep pneumo or H flu, and almost all of those are going to respond to amoxicillin, to a lesser degree penicillin. Amoxicillin is the way to go.
0: Wow. So at least in Ontario... For your run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia in an immunocompetent patient, we're talking one gram BID of amoxicillin. That's your go-to. Yep.
2: And that would be consistent with guidelines, uh, some guidelines in Europe as well, Australian guidelines. So I think you're seeing an increasingly progressive adoption or readoption of amoxicillin and returning away from the more broad spectrum and potentially more dangerous uh, antibiotics such as the macrolides and fluoroquinolones, which have a whole host of problems associated with them.
1: It's amazing how much this has shifted over what I like to think of as my short career. Uh, but over the past 15 years, we've seen a huge shift away from those agents uh, that uh, Andrew was mentioning, macrolides, fluoroquinolones, when we were r- routinely prescribing those as monotherapy.
0: Absolutely. So that's the sort of you know, healthy young guy comes in with uh, community-acquired pneumonia. Let's just add a few little modifications there. What if the patient's an alcoholic? You know, then I would imagine you'd want to maybe use amoxicillin clavulinic acid in in that case. What are some of the sort of key modifications of your basic, you know, one gram of amox BID for community-acquired pneumonia for outpatient?
2: Personally, I don't think there are too many modifications, to be honest with you. I think if the patient's highly likely to have poor oral hygiene, then I think it certainly uh, changes the potential spectrum. And I think in that situation, I would add the amoxicillin, clavulinic acid rather than the amoxicillin. Whether I really need to, I don't know. There isn't good data to suggest I need to change it. Similarly, there isn't data to suggest that I would need to make any substantial modifications for patients who come from a nursing home with uh, pneumonia, even though people tend to think that they're more likely to have gram-negative pneumonias. The literature really doesn't support that.
0: Wow. These are kind of game changers. Now, true allergy to penicillin is relatively uncommon, but we see allergy to penicillin kind of all the time let's say you just don't want to use penicillin, would doxycycline be your kind of go-to then?
2: Absolutely. I think the resistance rates are still acceptable. So in at least southern Ontario, it's about 15% the uh, streptococcus pneumoniae resistance to doxycycline. It has, I guess, the added benefit of covering some of the atypical bacteria, although whether or not you need to cover those is really uh, questionable. And doxycycline is really well tolerated. It's a bit difficult for patients who have some swallowing difficulties. It can be a a bit of a challenge. But apart from that, it's a drug that has a low associated risk of C. difficile as well. And so for many of those reasons, many of my colleagues use it as a go-to drug in pneumonia.
0: So that's outpatient therapy. Uh, What about the patient who's coming in, but is not so sick that they're going to the ICU, just to the floor, let's say. The question that seems to always come up is, should there be atypical coverage? So should they get azithromycin, for example, in addition to a gram or two of ceftriaxone, as an example? What are your kind of main options for the patient who's admitted to a non-ICU bed?
2: Yeah, so I think the pathogens are probably going to be the same. Your risk tolerance is going to be a little different because they're a bit sicker. And it will also depend on time of year. So June to November, more likely to have Legionella. And you can really make a decision or a shared decision on whether you want to cover the still rather infrequent possibility of Legionella or not. If you want to cover the Legionella or the possibility of Legionella, then you give a few days of azithromycin. If you don't want to, then you just treat with your beta-lactam, whatever beta-lactam you choose, whether that's amoxicillin, amoxicillin clavulanic acid, ceftriaxone, any of those are reasonable options. We've already talked about the oral versus IV issue here. And you can decide. Sometimes what people may do is treat the initial course with beta-lactams, and if the patient doesn't respond appreciably, then you add the azithro or you switch to the azithro, depending on investigations, perhaps. And those, I think, are all reasonable options. There's been two pivotal randomized controlled trials looking at the added benefit of so-called atypical coverage, usually with macrolides, in addition to beta-lactam therapy. One study, which was a Swiss study, looked at time to clinical stability. You could hypothesize that adding a macrolide might be beneficial in that situation. And certainly, atypical coverage in that randomized trial, resulted in earlier time to so-called clinical stability with no overall benefit in terms of mortality, for example. On the other hand, a Dutch study, which didn't look at clinical stability, but just looked at overall outcomes, found no difference with the comparison of beta-lactams versus beta-lactams plus atypical coverage. So I think we don't exactly know. My interpretation of it is, There may be some slight benefit to adding atypical coverage, but that's going to be accompanied by the inherent potential complications at risks of giving a patient a second unnecessary antibiotic. So because of that, I usually say you don't need it for most uh, patients, but I don't think it's unreasonable to add a second agent, especially if you've got a high suspicion of Legionella.
0: So, those are sort of your kind of go to regular medications. I want to start talking a little bit about the more complicated patients. So, first, which patients are at high risk for multi drug resistant pneumonia and how should they be treated differently to the run of the mill cap? In particular, which patients should be covered for MRSA with vancomycin and which patients should be covered with anti pseudomonals? So, let's start with the MRSA and then we'll go on to the uh, pseudomonas.
2: In answering this question, I'm going to go back to one of my earlier statements, which is most community acquired pneumonia doesn't have an identified bacterium with it. And when a bacterium is identified, it's usually strep pneumoniae or Haemophilus influenza. I think that's probably the most important statement in this podcast I, I will make, which is that almost always the only two organisms you need to cover are strep pneumo and H flu. No matter what a patient's MRSA status is, no matter where they come from, you almost always just have to cover those two from a bacterial point of view.
0: Well, I thought like ID specialists were like these super smart guys who knew all these esoteric things that emergency doctors had no clue about, but I just, I love how you've simplified it to that.
2: So, first of all, let me clarify. We're usually the best looking in the room, but maybe not the most esoteric and knowledgeable in the room. (laughs) Um, Kidding aside, there are times when MRSA is a concern, but I think both of you will recognize that there was a time not too long ago where we seem to see substantially more cases of commune acquired MRSA pneumonia than we've seen more recently. And it's still a relatively infrequent finding. Or in fact, it may be less frequent now than it was uh, several years ago. Uh, patients who have been incarcerated, for example, patients who, as I mentioned earlier, may have a bacteremic uh, source of their pneumonia, so they're having septic pulmonary emboli uh, related to injection drug use. Uh, you know, those are patients who I'm concerned about MRSA pneumonia. But Staph aureus pneumonia, in and of itself, is extremely uncommon with the caveat of the patients who head to the ICU. So I don't know why that is, to be honest with you. I guess it's, well, we know uh, staph aureus is a very virulent pathogen. And we do know that the relative frequency of staph aureus in patients admitted to the ICU with pneumonia is higher than patients who are discharged home or to the ward. There may be some ascertainment bias there, but there's probably that's probably a true phenomenon as well. And so patients who are going to the ICU, you certainly want to cover staph aureus. If they've got documented MRSA or you have a high suspicion of MRSA colonization, then I think it's reasonable to cover them for MRSA but in the absence of that, I don't think you really need to cover MRSA at all.
0: Interesting. You know, I've heard of these things. There's the, the SHORE score. You know, there's this list of patients that you should consider MRSA for, co-infection with influenza, chronic steroids, all elderly over the age of 75, dialysis patients, cavitary pneumonia. You know, I think in the, in the States, that's kind of what they go by uh, in terms of covering for MRSA.
2: Staph aureus is an important cause of pneumonia. It's an important cause of pneumonia in patients who are heading to the ICU. You usually know that they're heading to the ICU when they're in your emergency department. And for most of those patients, you're going to be fine with your ceftriaxone, plus or minus a macrolide. A small percentage of those patients, because of risk factors that are well-known for MRSA. But the most important one is a prior known history of MRSA or from a setting where MRSA is highly prevalent, you're going to cover for MRSA. And I'll also point out that we know across North America, at least, the prevalence of MRSA has been dropping, right? So staph aureus has become more susceptible to methicillin and therefore cefazolin, ceftriaxin, etc., over the past five to 10 years, we don't know why that's happening. There's a bunch of hypotheses, but we know that um, MRSA in particular is less common than it used to be.
0: Amazing stuff.
1: Things actually get better.
0: Wow. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's a bit about MRSA. What about uh, Pseudomonas? So, you know, I see a lot of uh, pip being used, especially for sicker patients with community acquired pneumonia. Pretty much everyone going to the ICU is getting uh, piptase, and meropenem would cover pseudomonas as well. Which patients do we need to cover for pseudomonas?
2: The patients who have structurally abnormal lung disease in general are the most likely to have pseudomonas colonization. Certainly the ones that I see the most would be patients, for example, with cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis, or patients who have some other anatomical abnormality related to tracheostomy or something like that. That's not really what we often refer to as community-acquired pneumonia. But nevertheless, if you have some kind of structural abnormality, you're more likely to have colonization of your airways with Pseudomonas, and therefore you're more likely to develop Pseudomonas pneumonia. Most of us, Pseudomonas isn't part of our microbiome. Pseudomonas is an environmental pathogen. We can find it in our running shoes, we find out in the soil and elsewhere, and it really doesn't make its way into our airways whatsoever. So if we come in with a pneumonia, and that would be true for most patients, the likelihood of having a pseudomonal infection is remotely small. So most patients who come in with a severe pneumonia get put on Piptaz or meropenem totally unnecessarily. And I think it's a really important point. For some reason, people think that Piperacil and tazobactam or meropenem are stronger antibiotics than ceftriaxone. I don't know why, but for some reason they think that it is. In my mind, I want to treat my patient with the best antibiotics that I know. And the ones that I'm most comfortable with for certainly strep pneumo and H flu, which are probably the ones that are going to most likely to kill my patient, is going to be a plain old ceftriaxone or penicillin or ampicillin, right? So the faster I can get a patient on that, the better. I've got a lot of comfort and they're less likely to cause secondary drug resistance if they end up hanging out in the ICU, for example, later on. So I'm actually very comfortable with those agents for most cases. But as I said, there is that rare time where a patient has some kind of structural problem or are known colonized with pseudomonas, and that's when I'll cover for it.
0: So certainly patients with structural lung disease, we should be thinking about covering for pseudomonas uh, with something like Piptaz or miropenem. Um But certainly, we don't need to put every patient who is sick with pneumonia on Piptaz that uh, ceftriaxone in the vast, vast majority of cases will be perfectly adequate we haven't mentioned fluoroquinolones yet. It seems like we used to use fluoroquinolones, as Dr. Summer had mentioned, quite a lot more. Is it true that if someone has TB and you give them a fluoroquinolone, it kind of becomes a nightmare for you later on in the hospital stay because it partially treats the TB so that you won't get any positive testing for TB, but the patient will get better from the TB. Is that true?
2: Absolutely. So fluoroquinolones are... Good agents for tuberculosis. And because even without treatment, tuberculosis can sometimes be a difficult diagnosis to make, we know that giving fluoroquinolones um, will reduce the sensitivity of our sputum samples. On top of that, it may be falsely reassuring because you give somebody who comes in with pneumonia fluoroquinolone, they get better initially because it's treating the tuberculosis, but in the long run, You haven't cured the tuberculosis, and all you've done is uh, delayed the diagnosis with a lower likelihood of recuperating the positive sputum culture.
1: And just to elaborate more on fluoroquinolone use, I know that in the departments I work in, uh, as well as my own prescribing practices... Because of all the downsides of fluoroquinolones, adverse events, uh, tendinopathies, yeah. drug interactions, the,
0: the FDA just came out with a thing that said uh, that it increases your risk for aortic dissection.
1: Right. The, the, um, there are no so one many really knows downsides. what to do with that. Yeah.
0: Um, but certainly, if you know, if you have other options, then then maybe you shouldn't be using fluoroquinolones. We have other
1: options, uh, and we and uh, like we've been elaborating on. Uh, Beta-lactams are really the core treatment for most community-acquired pneumonia patients. Fluoroquinolone monotherapy, for most indications in the ED, I think, have mostly fallen away. There are other options for almost everything that we use fluoroquinolones for primarily in the ED, and I prescribe them very rarely now.
0: Right. So, I mean, based on David Eurolink's recent quick hit, uh, we should pretty much ban SEPTRA. (laughs) And uh, now based on this, uh, fluoroquinolones should at least be sort of near the bottom of our list in terms of choices for community-acquired pneumonia. Um, I want to talk a little bit about aspiration. You know, we often get patients coming in from nursing homes who we suspect have aspirated uh, and they might be febrile and they might have kind of a full-blown pneumonia picture with their aspiration. Do you need to cover for anaerobes with, say, clavulin or metronidazole for those patients?
2: You do have to cover for anaerobes in patients who have true aspiration pneumonias. Usually those anaerobes are susceptible to beta-lactams, especially the penicillins or even ceftriaxone. So you don't have to add anything. That tradition of covering for anaerobes with metronidazole or clindamycin really came about from some data looking at lung abscesses. Which the pathogenesis is also aspiration and at least initially, um, but that was uh, wholeheartedly extrapolated.
0: Wow, there's so many game changers in here. It's unbelievable. Ceftriaxone will cover anaerobes generally speaking. Yeah, most
2: oral anaerobes, ceftriaxone is good enough. Absolutely, and you know the thing I tell most people is almost all pneumonias are aspiration in general, right? So bacterial pneumonias are aspirational in nature. You have oropharyngeal colonization, and then you have microaspiration and then replication. There's no difference from the patient who has some swallowing difficulties and also has a tendency to microaspiration, which is absolutely different from aspiration pneumonitis, which is a macro aspiration event and is a chemical event, and it's not an infectious
0: disease. Great point. I want to talk about steroids now. Now, it seems to me that steroids are quite frequently given in the United States to patients with community-acquired pneumonia, but it seems hardly ever in Canada. So I want to dig into the literature a bit on this one so that we can come up with a good evidence-based answer. Dr. Summer, let's start with you. What are the indications for steroids for community-acquired pneumonia?
1: I don't think anyone is going to definitively answer this question. There's probably a role... For steroids in the sick pneumonia patient. In the patient who is headed to uh, the ICU or a step-down unit, there's probably a role based on a couple of studies that have been done over the last two years. Uh, I'm referring to the ADRENAL trial and the APPROACHES trial. Those are both trials that were done on uh, septic patients, but a large proportion of them uh, ended up having the diagnosis of pneumonia. Interestingly, uh, they had disparate results. The ADRENAL trial had uh, limited utility uh, to the steroids, where the APPROACHES trial actually had a mortality benefit uh, to uh, giving uh, steroids in these septic patients. But when you look at both of the trials from a little bit more distance, you can see that even the ADRENAL trial had some signaling towards a benefit of steroids in these patients. Uh, so I would say that, that there's probably a role for steroids In the septic patients who are going to be admitted with pneumonia, the dose is not megadose steroids. Both those trials used a total daily dose of 200 milligrams of hydrocortisone. One of them was in 50 milligram boluses. One was infused over the whole day. So we're probably looking at, from an emergency perspective, a single dose of 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone in your septic pneumonia patients that are heading to the ICU.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I think it remains highly controversial primarily because the quality of the data is overall rather poor. The systematic review done by Reed Seminyak looking at steroids in pneumonia showed that the poor quality studies were the with the high risk of bias were the ones most likely to show a benefit. The higher quality studies didn't show a benefit. However, there was overall a bit of a benefit countered primarily by the risk of hyperglycemia. So there may be a benefit. I remain agnostic uh, on whether there's a benefit or not. And if there's a benefit, it isn't me who's really adopting the risk. It's the patient. And for most short courses of steroids, the risk isn't substantial. But maybe the benefit isn't that substantial either. And so uh, if I were to use, and I have to admit, I don't routinely use steroids in uh, community-acquired pneumonia. But if I were to, I would tell the patient, listen, this is why I would consider it but there is a bit of a risk here. Would you like to take it or not? And in the few times that I've had that discussion, they've all said no. Maybe that's because I lead them to that answer. I don't know, but I'm not a big fan of them, that's for sure.
1: The downsides of a short course of physiologic dose steroid are pretty low. There's transient hyperglycemia that is easily, easily managed. Uh, but in terms of things uh, that we traditionally thought about with steroid doses like secondary infections, wound healing, they tend not to be the case with these more moderate dose steroids for short periods of time.
0: All right. So I guess a take-home bottom line would be if you think your patient's heading towards the ICU, give your intensivist a call, have a discussion, make a decision with your intensivist, whether they agree to 50 milligrams of hydrocortisone as an initial dose. Um, And then once they're up in the unit, they they can decide whether to continue it there. So that's a bit about steroids. We haven't yet talked about the duration of therapy. So Dr. Morris, one of the key elements of antimicrobial stewardship involves how long the patient's on the antibiotic. And I think that we've seen over the last few years that patients are generally on antibiotics longer than they should be. How many days should patients with run-of-the-mill CAP be treated with antibiotics for? You know, is five days adequate? Seven days, 10 days used to seem to be kind of the, the standard. What do you have to say about the duration of therapy?
2: I would say if you looked at all comers, on average, five days is probably adequate. There was one randomized control trial that looked at five days and then reassessed. And then at the reassessment date, they were randomized, if stable, to placebo or an additional five days, and there was no difference. So for, I think, the patient who's at five days done better, there's no difference between five days and 10 days. So you're probably good with five days. What we don't know are the more complex patients— perhaps patients with immunocompromise or patients with structural lung disease, we don't really know if routinely treating them for five days is as good as a a longer course. Some people are now basing their treatment durations on how quickly they respond and, and the eyeball test. I don't know if that's the right or wrong thing to do. I certainly think that for almost everyone, 10 to 14 days is usually too long.
0: All right, so as a general rule, if we're sending someone home who's young and healthy, who's got a community acquired pneumonia, five to seven days is adequate. For the, you know, many of these patients with comorbidities are going to be admitted anyhow, and then that's really up to the inpatient team. On to case number three, your cold overhead, doctor to recess. A 73-year-old man with a history of diabetes comes in with an altered level of awareness of seven hours duration after about one week of cough, fever, and shortness of breath. He's hemodynamically unstable with a positive shock index and an oxygen saturation of 82% on room air. All right, maybe your sphincter is a little bit tightened. Let's just assume that the diagnosis is septic shock secondary to pneumonia, I want to talk about some of the nuances of resuscitation in these kind of patients because we see them quite often. Dr. Summer, we talked about fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy in quite a bit of detail in our recent episode on sepsis and septic shock. As a reminder to our listeners, how should we go about fluid resuscitation and vasopressor therapy in patients with pneumonia and septic shock?
1: I love these cases. I think a lot of people would be worried about over-resuscitating a patient like this, who's already got respiratory compromise and flooding their lungs with a whole bunch of crystalloid. And I think that's a reasonable concern. You're not going to go and give this person two liters of crystalloid without thinking about it. That being said, they're in septic shock. They're likely hypotensive and tachycardic as a result of being fluid depleted. And they may be fluid responsive. So I think it's reasonable to start with a bolus of crystalloid and reassess them, something like a 500cc fluid bolus, and clinically reassess them. If you believe that POCUS of the IVC is useful for gauging fluid responsiveness, that would be a reasonable thing to do, although in a spontaneously breathing patient, the evidence is severely limited. We also know that early use of vasopressors, even peripherally from the SENSOR trial recently, will result in lower volumes of crystalloid necessary uh, and probably lower morbidity. So I think I'd have a very low index to start this person early on norepinephrine peripherally until I can do the rest of their resuscitation.
0: Eloquently put, I love that. Let's talk a little bit about managing hypoxemia in patients with severe pneumonia, you know, how to get their SATs up, basically. Now, in those patients who don't obviously need a tube in their airway what are the options? So, you know, there's BiPAP, which, you know, to me doesn't seem like a great idea just because they can't clear their secretions with all that positive pressure, cramming the secretions deep into their lungs. There's high flow nasal cannula, which seem like kind of the latest and greatest thing. What's your take on the best way to manage hypoxemia in patients with severe pneumonia, assuming that you're not going to just jump straight to intubation?
1: So there there are three trials in the past 20 years that have looked at hypoxemic respiratory failure in patients who a large majority end up having community-acquired pneumonia or other causes of pneumonia. Early data suggested that there was some benefit to BiPAP. Uh, There was a study in the late 90s that had a benefit to BiPAP. The benefit was primarily not in the patients who had pneumonia alone, but had pneumonia plus COPD.
0: Right. So we know from really quite robust data uh, that BiPAP is very helpful in COPD patients. But of course, there's a lot of overlap there with pneumonia, right?
1: Absolutely. And in the more uh, recent st- study, in a, a study published in the New England Journal uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the Florali trial, where they compared high flow nasal cannula, uh, standard supplemental O2 by uh, non rebreather mask, and BiPAP, there was a mortality benefit to high-flow nasal cannula in those patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure versus standard therapy and versus BiPAP. And in fact, BiPAP fared poorer than standard oxygen therapy in that trial. There was a harm to BiPAP in those patients. So I think in patients who have likely pneumonia and not COPD or heart failure as a result of their pneumonia... Or pneumothorax, I hope. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> High flow nasal cannula is the way to go. That being said, in a patient who you think is most likely going to end up intubated, and often we know who's going to get intubated, sometimes we don't, there may be a role for BiPAP uh, to temporize them until you can pre-oxygenate them and get them adequately resuscitated to intubate them. Or if you're unsure about the diagnosis, sometimes the BiPAP will buy you a little bit of time until you can be a little bit more certain because the patients don't come labeled as I have pneumonia. Sometimes you think they may have heart failure, COPD, or some other cause for their dyspnea. So there's probably still a role for BiPAP. If you're sure about the diagnosis, BiPAP is of limited utility other than in that perhaps pre-oxygenation, maybe DSI type of situation.
0: All right. So those were a few nuances when it comes to resuscitating the really sick pneumonia patient. I want to move on to disposition and risk stratification. We've talked a little bit about CURB-65. We've talked about PSI. There's also something that's been used quite a bit to determine whether someone should go to the ICU or not, and that's uh, the smart cop decision tool. And there's this debate whether we should be using the smart cop decision tool or PSI in terms of deciding whether patients should go to the ICU or not. What do you think are the practical indications for admission to ICU for pneumonia?
2: It always involves a discussion with the intensivist. And usually that circles around a few things. One is, can the patient be managed on the floor or not? If they can't practically be managed on the floor because of hemodynamic reasons or ventilatory reasons, uh, then they need to go to the ICU. Second consideration relates to the pace of their illness. Uh, there are some patients who you know, they come in and they don't seem so unwell, but very rapidly deteriorate. And for those patients, I have a very low threshold to asking the intensivist to come see. And uh, usually, they're more than happy to accept that patient even if it may end up being for only a short period of time.
1: Just one little thing to add uh, on this front. There's some data to suggest that patients who get admitted to the ward first and then subsequently to the ICU tend to fare poorer than the ones who get admitted to the ICU directly, even when you Case match them and uh, try to try to try to match their comorbidities, and in fact, there was one study uh, in the in 2015 that looked at hospitals that didn't have an ICU versus hospitals that did have an ICU, and so some of those patients were kind of discretionary admissions to the ICU. You know, we have an ICU, and therefore the patients are going to go to the ICU. The patients who did not get intensive care fared poorer. So there's probably some benefit to ICU care in those sicker pneumonia patients, even the ones who are in that kind of gray zone. So if you're concerned uh, either about their respiratory status or about their hemodynamics or about their comorbidities and you think that there's a high probability that they're going to deteriorate, it's better to get your intensivist involved. (laughs)
0: Well, we're just about to wrap it up. Uh, the last question I'd like to ask is what you think the future of community-acquired pneumonia diagnosis and management holds in, say, the next 5 or 10 or 15 years.
2: I think we're going to end up with a point-of-care test. We're pretty close to that right now where patient will come in and it'll probably be a finger prick, plus or minus a sputum sample or saliva sample that will tell us not only the organism but what agent we can use for that organism. And then we'll at least be able to give reasonably targeted therapy. I'm not optimistic that we'll have substantially more therapies in the next or in the near future, but at least we'll be wiser about how we choose them.
0: And I understand, uh, Dr. Morris, that there's some new guidelines that are going to be published soon with regards to pneumonia. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So we know that for the last couple of years, the Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Thoracic Society have been working together to develop an update to their community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. And I'm uh, certainly looking forward to seeing that update in the next month or two.
0: All right. So by the time this podcast is published... We might have those guidelines available and we'll have uh, links to the guidelines available. Hopefully what we say on the podcast will be in line with the guidelines.
2: Yeah, we'll see what they got right. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's a perfect ending. I love that.